Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's uh, UCL's uh, lunch hours lectures. I'm Paola Lettieri, Professor of Chemical Engineering at UCL and Academic Director of UCList, our new UCL's campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Today is the fifth and last lecture of this series dedicated to UCList, and it coincides with the UCL Festival of Culture that is uh, ongoing this week. Uh, so we welcome today Thomas, a teaching fellow in public and cultural engagement, uh, working with UCL Culture. An interesting background in chemical engineering and archaeology. Thomas today will be taking us through a journey of objects. Uh, explaining how we actually learn from objects and how these are related also to well-being. Thomas, we're all yours. Shall I, shall I actually also take the opportunity to introduce Amy? Amy will be facilitating the questions and answers session. So Amy Clements, our um, academic planning coordinator in the UCList program office. Thank you. Thanks so much, Paula. Um, I hope if this is too loud indicator, I, I tend to have quite a strong voice, maybe I'll move it down a little. Um, and if any of you, you would like to sit closer to some of the objects I distributed, feel free to, to uh, take this moment to shift around. You don't have to, but if, if you want to, now's your, now's your chance. Um, and then I'll, I'll get going. And at the start, there's just a couple of things so this lecture series is obviously in conjunction with the development of the UCS East Campus. And I will get to that pretty much towards the end. So, so, so the, the, the link with UCL East will, will, will be there um, for, for the final part of my presentation. What I'm, what I'm planning to do before that is, so here just have the title. So object-based learning and, and well-being is, 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 is the overall idea, and this is um, what I'll be talking about is essentially the journey that many of us here in, in UCL have been taking for the last 15 years or so. I, I'm only here for about five of those. Having established quite a strong expertise in object-based learning in, in that period, in particular, my colleague Helen Chatterjee and, and, and some others. Um, and in a way, we have sort of coined the term or, or, or made, made, made the term object-based learning our own. There's different terms. Some people say object-focused or object-centered learning. But now it seems object-based learning, OBL, it's nicely abbreviated, has sort of really won out. And it seems to be the term of choice for most people, at least in this country. Um, and also in Australia, where we have had quite a lot of, of contact with, with, with people. But the, 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 the key of today is then also this idea of, of of a slow education and an authentic education. That might sound a bit strange. Some people have been asking me about this. You know, it sounds wrong, you know, but I, I don't think it does. I think it's actually quite important. And, and this will be one of the, of the key things, I guess, I want to, I want to highlight today. So this is, the, this is the plan. I hope I'll, I'll stick with this. In the, and there's not a huge crowd, which is probably quite a good thing, because I, I'm, I'm going to try and engage a little bit with you rather than doing a, a standard 45-minute lecture. I will start out by thinking about the material world we all live in, we inhabit, and, and the material world we create as, as humans, very much so. So it's a, a very much a symbiotic process. Um, 
Then I, I, I move into the, the idea of object-based learning. For those of you who are not very familiar with what it is, some of you might be quite familiar, but just in case, um, before moving on to thinking about slow looking and engaging in particular, and, and, and then how that relates to well-being. So it's sort of a journey, and this mirrors our own journey here in many ways at UCL from thinking about working with material culture, in particular in a museum context, to thinking more about then or moving into research on the pedagogical aspects of working with material culture to now in the last five years in particular to think very much about the health and well-being dimension. And this is where we'll be ending up with, and this is also directly how the whole thing will relate to UCL East, where we are hoping to start a new, a new master's program in, in a couple of years. But before, um, right after this, I'll be running across to the Grant Museum of Zoology across Gareth Street. And I think there are still a couple of places left if any of you are keen to, to do some more of the hands-on. So if you, you, you see the objects in this lecture, I won't have much time to tell you much about these objects. It's really for you to, to look at them. Um, but if you want to know some more about these objects and some other ones that are waiting for us at the Grant Museum, feel free to, to book yourself on. I think there are three sessions between two and five. So if, if, if you're keen to do more, feel free to come across uh, to Garris, uh, across Garris Street to the Grant Museum with me after this. And, and, and we'll, the, the, it'll be more of a hands-on exploration of, of, of some of the ideas that I'm talking about in the next half hour or so. Okay, how is this volume-wise? You can, can all hear me, but it's not too loud, right? Okay, good. Um, so, if any of you, I don't know, want to do the Eventbrite thing, once you're done, if you can put those distractive devices away, which is sort of part of the point of my, of my talk today, that we live in this world that's completely um, inundated with information at the press of a button, that we take it for granted that if we want to find something out, when is the next bus, when is the next train, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow, um, who was the 42nd president of the, of the United States, who was the third president, anything, it doesn't matter, we, we just go and, and, and Google it, right? We have these devices, so any, any bits of information we are looking for, um, we take for granted, we can find out within a, within a matter of seconds. The question that I'm asking um, is, what gets left behind in that process of, of not so much the fact that it's available, it's fantastic. The internet you know, has transformed higher education in particular and research at, at university, but any aspect of life. It's, it's permeated the way we live our life in, in so many positive ways. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, being able to have information at the press of a button. What I'm saying is what gets left behind by the knowledge that we can get anything we want to know. And one of the key questions I teach on the Arts and Sciences program here at UCL, one of the key questions we ask ourselves and we ask our incoming first years every October is, what is it you could learn here at UCL with us that you can't find out on Google? What is the added value of actually coming and meeting with, with, with teaching staff at UCL and researchers over those three years? What can you, in the past we would have said, what can we teach you, but now we'd like to think about this, what can you learn, what's the added value that Google can't already teach you, that TED Talks or, or Linda courses or, or, or even Wikipedia can't already tell you. So with that in mind, 
I want you to ask, I want to ask you to put those, those devices away and, and either look closely at one of the objects I provided or for those of you who are not sitting near an object, so if you want to, now is your, your last chance to reshuffle. For those of you who are not sitting near an object, I have, I have something else that's going to be up on the screen in a minute. Okay. So all I want you to do for a couple of minutes, we don't have much time, is to look. Look at what's in front of you, either on the screen or, or on, 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 on your desk. And do that in silence, and I'll be silent as well. I'll be staring at this for a minute, and then I'll, I'll, I'll resume with a, with a little conversation. Okay, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave it at that, otherwise we'll be running very tight on time. Ideally, this, we, we could continue this for another while. Um, who would like to tell me what you've just seen in the last two minutes or so? Did everybody look at some objects? Anybody look at the, at, at the painting? And sorry, this is second best, obviously, to having a, a real oil painting. But it's, um, you, get, you get the idea, I guess. So did you notice anything? What, what, what was it you noticed? Either about the object in front of you that most of us can't see, but you can tell us, or about this work of art that, that we all can all see? Blood vessels. Blood vessels. Okay, interesting, yes. Like the whomping willow that stands yes. outside, outside, outside Hogwarts, yes. Yeah, it is on the screen. If you're in an art gallery, you don't have the impression it's 2D in the same way. It's, it comes across as much more, but it is still, it's, it's, it's obviously a work on canvas, so it's, it is still flat, so it's sort of perceived as 2D. But all paintings in particular have a really strong haptic quality, and I'll come back to that, the benefits of, of, of that, but yeah. So have you got a preference between the 2D and the 3D? Okay. Anybody wants to talk about their objects? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a composite material. It's not stone, but it looks on first impression. It looks like stone. Does it feel like stone? Okay. You can if you want. All of these objects are safe enough to touch. Um, just not to drop. Okay. I'm not going to tell you more about these things. As I said, if you want to find out more, you have to come to the Grant Museum for, for, for the workshops afterwards. Or we, maybe in q and I, I won't refuse if you ask me a direct question. Um, anybody recognize this painter? And I don't care too much about this. I'm not an art historian. It's not a test. I, on purpose, I took something that's not very well known. It's actually quite a well-known painter, but this type of work is not associated with that particular painter. Um, but it was mainly about getting your eyes into something that has interesting trajectories. Like, and it's interesting what came out in terms of the memory. It reminds you of something, like something from, from a film or a book. It reminds you of, of, of blood vessels. Um, so that, 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 that's interesting. So you, you see lots of things. I was starting to wonder, is this a squirrel there on this, on this bottom branch? I see this little, this little red dot with the white. This looks like a squirrel with a white belly. Um, so the more longer you look at these things, and I'll come back to that, the more you'll start seeing. So, this is the same artist. And you can see the, the journey he took from looking not quite as naturalistic as, as the tree we just looked at, but still how it gets more and more abstract. Any guesses? Hmm? No? It's Pierre Mondrian, who is obviously very famous for this type of work. But you see, in a way, you can see the journey that he took. And this is about slow looking. He just stared at nature and stared and stared until it all broke down into geometric shapes. And then you end up with something very geometrical. Um, so there's this journey, and this is a, a really good uh, example of, of how artists use slow looking. But just staring at nature until it falls in, in, into geometric patterns and reducing it all down to very simple geometry. I never understood abstract art until I started thinking about slow looking. And now it, it started making sense to me that actually this is it's really what it is. It's distilling what you see to the bare minimum. To the, and, and in a way, we do all of that all the time. We, we break things down into geometrical shapes. We just don't realize it. But if you make that process conscious, then that's what you end up with. I'm sure many of you know people with, with coffee mugs with, uh, with that pattern on. Um, so this, this then leads me on to thinking about what it means to live in a material world, as we all do. And um, excuse that, that pun. So it's really striking with humans that, uh, and I should read this out, the, the, the guidelines for today said I, sh I should read the quotes I put on. So I'll, I'll read it and then I'll talk about it. So although other animals make and interact with a limited number of artifact types on a sustained basis, in no other species do the variety of artifacts and the diversity and complexity of interactions begin to approach those found in even the most materially impoverished human society. This is Michael Schiffer writing about um, the material human, so, so the, the material world we inhabit. And, and it is striking. I challenge all of you, and we don't, have, we don't have time to talk about this. I do this with my students, to think about a, the most basic human interaction. Think of about any human interaction that doesn't use, involve something material, that doesn't involve something external to a body, our bodies that, that's material made, that's, that's, that we either repurposed or, or, or actually made ourselves. I, I can't think of anything. I've been trying this. 
in, in, in a, whatever you come up with, how, it doesn't matter how intimate it is, there's usually something material that intervenes. And this is extremely, that's different from all the other creatures on, on this planet, I guess. The chimpanzees, for example, they're quite crafty, they're quite good tool users in many ways, but when they groom each other, they just need their hands and their mouths. Whereas when we groom each other, or ourselves, we have developed a whole range of material culture, with, starting with combs and brushes and nail scissors, and, 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 and various, various other cuticle sticks and, and you know, the, whole, the whole palette of the cosmetic industry comes out of that, that basic idea of chimpanzees lousing each other. Um, so you, you can see how, how, how dominated our world is by materials, how we're building this world around us, and, but it, it makes us human in, in, in many ways. This is sort of one of the key, the key things. That it's, just, it's not that nobody other than humans uses tools or is able to make tools, but it's the scale of it, that there is nothing we do, essentially, without, that's not mediated by some material objects. And that's obviously then very striking in terms of thinking about the world. This is a nice um, book by an artist that came out a couple of years ago, Paolo Zuccotti, who looked at people around the world on a 24-hour day, and she charted and photographed every single object that she touched, that they touched. I'm sure she missed a few, but this is just an example. And here, this is a, I deliberately chose this one for, of a two-year-old toddler, because we think toddlers, what, what the hell did they touch? And these are just, these are the things that this two-year-old girl touched in a 24-hour day. And probably there's, there are quite some, some more that went unnoticed. Um, but just this idea that the range of, 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 of things we touch in any, any given day is, 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 is striking. And then that, that leads us directly to learning. If we, if we say, okay, materials are so important, objects are what makes us human to some degree, then clearly looking at objects, thinking about objects, like the ones in front of you, like the painting we looked at, can tell us an awful lot about ourselves, our world, the place we inhabit. So therefore, they are fantastic tools for, for learning, um, both about the wider world, about history, about the future, potentially, about science, but also about ourselves. Um, and there are just some suggestions of how objects can be employed. So to, to enhance subject-specific knowledge, very straightforward. If you have, the example I like to use is, it's very difficult to explain to somebody the difference between a, a, an igneous, a metamorphic, and a sedimentary rock. It's very difficult to explain that in theory, but actually give them three types of, give them a bit of lava, give them a bit of sandstone, and give them, um, so, uh, give, them, give them a bit of granite, and people will appreciate the difference very, very quickly. So, uh, so subject-specific knowledge, very straightforward, but also to facilitate the acquisition of research and practical skills. And again, that goes without saying. So drawing, describing, observing, it's, it's, it's very, very straightforward to do with objects. But also these wider connections, because very quickly when you think about objects in front of you, you're thinking about what else to remind you of, and how they relate, or how do you relate to historical processes. How does it, did this object end up in the form that it does? So these questions come up very quickly. So it's very easy with objects to get to quite complex conceptual leaps that, it's, it, that may be difficult, like, like the example of the geologist, that may be quite difficult to actually make purely in theory. Um, and then from a very pedagogical perspective, there is plenty of work, some of this we have done recently ourselves in UCL, about the specific learning benefits. Like, do objects help with memory recall? And, and we know they do. So people store memories in objects. 
There's even these techniques that people use who are very good at memorizing things, where they actually imagine objects and they, they replace numbers, for example, with objects in their head. And by remembering the object, sequence of objects, they remember a very long sequences of numbers. So there's techniques we use with objects. So we store memories, but also the point I've already made about abstract conceptualizations. That using objects, we can ask more and more complicated questions the longer we engage with them. And this then relates, again, back to the, the idea of, of, of that slow engagement with materials. The longer we engage, the more questions we ask, uh, and also the more collaborative these engagements are. So social engagements, if you talk in a group, then things you can figure out are usually much greater than the things you can figure out on your, on your own with them. A little bit of history. I, I won't over, overdo this, but in UCL, we are quite proud of our tradition of object-based learning. These are two images from the 1880s. The one on the top left um, from the Slate School of fine, fine, fine Art. S using, in this case, largest uh, sculptures, using artworks that are now part of the Art Museum collection, at least the ones that, that weren't bombed in the 1940s, um, from the Splaxman sculpture collection largely and, and others, for studying fine art. And below, on the, on, 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 on the bottom, the, uh, the students of the Grant Museum studying uh, so comparative anatomy using specimens from Edmund Grant's collection, which came to UCL in the 1840s, and is still part of the Grant Museum. So some of the specimens I'll be working with later this afternoon are possibly some of those that these particular students were looking at in over 140 years ago, 130 years ago. So there's this, this quite a proud tradition at UCL. And what's important about our collections, and I won't go into detail, we have three museums here on the campus. We have a fourth museum in the Royal Free Hospital and several other collections. So something like three quarters of a million artifacts across UCL. But what's important about them, all of these started their life as teaching collections to some degree. And we are really keen on keeping it that way. That essentially nothing is off limits. We have some very rare specimens, but even those are regularly part of research projects. But what we're really keen of is talking to people who want to use the everyday specimens we have in our collections as well. So we're trying to get a really broad community across UCL to come and work with us with those collections to help us broaden our horizons, not just finding out about the collections themselves, but actually that helps us finding out about the world we inhabit. And there's lots of Lots of mysteries and secrets still locked away in our, in our museum cabinets uh, across the collections. Um, what, as you can see from those images, that UCL and, 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 and other universities in the, in the 19th century and going into the first half of the 20th century, object-based learning, the way we call it now, it wasn't called that then, was normal part of the curriculum. There was a lot of hands-on work in, in zoology, obviously in, in, in fine art it's always been, in, in geology, in, in, lots of, in lots of archaeology, of course. And this is why we have those collections. What happened in the post-war period, in the second half of the 20th century, that stopped to a large degree. Uh, and educa higher education became extremely theoretical. And now, in the, in the last 15 years, sort of since, sort of since the turn of the, of, of the new century, we've started really rediscovering the benefits of working with those collections. And we are really lucky in UCL that we kept almost all of them. Some of them just about. Whereas other universities, a lot of them divested their collections, gave them away, threw them out, um, which is a real loss. Um, we are really lucky that we have most of those preserved, and now we can rediscover their, their purpose, their, their value in, in education. But as I will say, also beyond that. Um, and that's just some of the research that we've been doing in, the, in recent years. This is a book by 
by Helen, I mentioned Helen Chatterjee, my, my, my colleague, and, and Leonie Hannan, who moved on to Queens of Belfast a few years ago, who was here. When we asked about 300 students across the board, two-thirds of them, or just, just, just under, strongly agreed, and, and quite a large number of them agreed, that um, object-based learning is more effective than just listening to talks or lectures. And there are just some quotes from some of those students. OBL inspired me to do more independent learning. It's good to see how lots of different theoretical ideas relate to the real world. You are involved in learning, so you can learn better. You can ask questions and discuss. Object-based learning encourages problem solving, as it is a first-hand learning experience. Um, so there's a range of, of, of students, but, but more, the vast majority of students believe it does make a difference if you bring in objects like this in, into a classroom situation. Um, the pity, as is here, is the case here, that our classrooms, by and large, aren't really designed for that kind of thing, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, so, this then leads me on. So, so, students talk about this, this engagement, that they, they are involved in the process, they can problem solve, but all of this involves taking time. You can't do that very quickly. Um, you need to take your time with these objects. And, and this is one of the key benefits. So, this is the the power of, 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 of doing things slowly. Anybody would like to make a stab at how long people who go to museums, who tend to be culturally interested, that's why they go to museums, right? How long do they on average spend in front of, a, of any particular museum object or artwork? How long do they look at one particular piece as they make their way through a, a museum or art gallery? There's been quite, quite a bit of research on this. What do you think? What's the average time a person looks at, a, at an artwork or museum object? Not a bad guess. Between 20 and 30 seconds. Yes, absolutely. So 20 seconds is sort of the, the lower, the lower. But yeah, very few people. I mean, on an average, look look more than half a minute on at, at, at artworks and, and and museum objects. So how much do you see? And there's been research on that actually. What students can remember when they do that? Literally, when they they're being timed. 30 seconds, move on. 30 seconds, move on. And then afterwards, they've been asked, what do you remember by what you saw today? And it's obviously very sketchy and very limited. Um, so you can see very little in, in, in 30 seconds. And on the back of that realization, a movement has grown that calls itself slow looking, uh, which is sort of an answer to the slow food movement that emerged in, 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 in response to fast food and, and the McDonaldization of, of the world. And now the BBC obviously have slow radio. So this, this slow is creeping slowly into our, our, our lives again by people realizing the benefits of stepping back, of taking your time. And the more fast-paced our lives are getting, and this is going back to the, having the information at the press of a button, um, the, the, more, the more this is becoming popular. There are, um, and this obviously relates back to our, our, our tree. We didn't look very slowly. We had two or three minutes, but, but still, it's more, it's three times, four times more than most people look at an artwork when they go to a gallery. Um, so, so the benefits of this are, are really interesting to, to, to understand. Uh, and, and this comes out, Harvard did a lot of research on, on this. There's, a, there's an art historian called Jennifer Roberts who writes prolifically about slow looking. And what she does, she makes her, her, her art history students go to the Boston Art Gallery and sit in front of one piece of art, they can pick it, which one, for three hours. And they need to chart what they've discovered. And there's part of the paper that she, she wrote with that she did this herself. And in her case, she actually stayed. She stayed as long until she would see nothing new. And I think it was nearly seven hours. She had the clock running, and she noticed 
certain fine details. It took her 25 minutes to notice something, like me and the squirrel, for example. You know, you look at this for a long time before you notice these things and, and wonder. Um, so this is, this is really, really interesting, the things you start noticing and the connections you start to be able to make when you take your time. The, the thing with slow looking, and this is why I didn't call this slow looking, but slow education, is that the, the slow looking has sort of been um, colonized very strongly by the, the fine art and art histor historian movement, or, or discipline, by the art historical disciplines, I guess. And I think it's important that we also look at tactile objects in the same way and use the other senses, not just our, 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 our eyes, not just our visual senses, especially because, um, because our fingers, our fine motor skill, and, and, and the amount of sensitivity we have in our fingertips is, is, is second to none. Our eyes are reasonably okay. Our hearing and, and, and sense of smell isn't that great compared to most of, of, of the animal kingdom. Our eyes are pretty good at what they do, but our fingers are, are outstanding. There's, there's no other almost no other creature that has such sensitivity and fine motor skills. Obviously, the opposable thumb helps. So therefore, actually thinking about the tactile is really important. Before I go back to that, though, um, there is some work on the benefits of slow looking. And, and this relates to why looking at an oil painting is not a two-dimensional enterprise. Um, that there is evidence from, again, lots of work done in Harvard and, and Philadelphia that there's evidence that structured visual arts curricula can facilitate development of clinical observation skills. So lots of medical degrees in, in, in North America, some of them doing it here, involve an element of, of fine art in particular. I think they should work with objects more generally, but that's, that's my opinion. The second one, medical, medical schools um, incorporating these artistic workshops in their curriculum and the learning the importance of arts in the medical education. Here in Southford, in Manchester, there was an, an experiment, a, 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 a trial with dermatology students and, and qualified dermatologists on a, on a continual professional development workshop looking at oil paintings in particular because with dermatologists something like 90% of their diagnosis are made on visual observation of a patient. So actually the surface, the skin of the oil painting is what they're really interested in, not necessarily the composition, not the first impression but actually really focusing in on the fine detail, on, on the lumps and bumps on the painting really enhanced the observation skills and, and it, it showed a market increase in how well they could diagnose rare, diagnose rare skin conditions subsequently. So they had a trial group with people studying fine close-up oil painting and a group that didn't. And then they, they had looked at the same skin conditions and the group that looked at the oil paintings did much better in, in, in observing and, and identifying those skin conditions. And, and this benefit of, of art beyond the diagnostic skills has been recognized for a long time. This is from Florence Nightingale in 1860, where she was nursing people in this, in, in this uh, great hall in, in, in this medieval hospital in, in, in Siena. And, and you can see that the artworks on the walls all surrounding the, the patients, they are stretched out in, in the beds. And what she realizes is that the effect in sickness of beautiful objects, and especially of brilliancy of color, is hardly dull appreciated by the authorities. The variety of form and brilliance of color in the objects presented to the patients are actual means of recovery. So people feel better about themselves when they have something to look at while they're they are getting better. There's also examples of, of, of bedrooms where ceilings were painted for, for, for patients that couldn't leave the bed and it made a real difference to their recovery. And another really nice study um, is, is much more recent from the 80s where um, Ulrich found that the average hospital stay of patients with a view of trees from their beds 
was um, just under a day quicker, shorter, compared to, to, to the ones for patients who only could look at a brick wall. So this also brings in nature. So it brings us back to the trees, though, which is interesting. So this, this theme, this tree keeps coming back. Um, so there's, there's an element of nature, but these patients didn't engage with nature. They just had something to look at that was interesting, that was changing, that wasn't a constant same of, of, of a wall, and it, and it aided their, their recovery. And this is quite a large, uh, you know, significant enough sa sample size that this, this just on the day make, makes a difference. So we can see there is something to this. There is something from a learning perspective, but also from a, from, from a health and well-being perspective, to looking slowly at things um, around us, whether these are artworks or other objects. And this is where I'm bringing it fully squarely back to three-dimensional objects in particular, which I'm mainly interested in, although I would see artworks in exactly the same way. So I'm not even going to, well, I should try and pronounce it. So this is Mila Hechiksmahaili, who is a Hungarian psychologist who came up with this idea of this flow state, so this, or, or immersion. So this is the, the idea that when you are reaching that stage, when you're in flow, it means that you're totally absorbed in a task without space for minor stresses or anxieties, which is significant for, for health and well-being again. Um, so this idea that if you're completely captivated, if you're completely engrossed, if you're completely absorbed in what you're doing, this doesn't have to be looking at, at, at an object or a painting, but it can be. It can be doing embroidery or working with clay or doing the washing up for that matter. But when you forget everything else, when you're in the zone, that seems to have real benefits for your mental well-being in particular. And this relates quite nicely. Some of you might have come across the, the New Economics Foundation's Five Ways of Well-Being. In particular to those two, to taking notice. Taking notice is all about slow looking. It's all about standing back and noticing the things around you in the world. To paying attention and taking your time with it. And, and obviously the learning. Keep, keep, keeping learning. Whereas most of, most of these other, uh, of those five points are also easily being touched when you, when you engage in, in slow looking and object-based learning. But these two in particular are, are, are very striking how, how well that fits. And then the question comes also, can we prove this? I've already showed the little bit of research we did with our students and, um, and how they all seem to say, and, and we've repeated this with smaller cohorts in the meantime, and they all, it's usually two-thirds of them that, that say, this really benefits my learning. And fair enough, there are some students who, who, who might be much more two-dimensionally focused, uh, material, uh, kind of theoretically based, but, but the vast majority of students clearly benefit from it. And we did the same then with the well-being. And, and my colleagues, Linda Thompson and Helen Chatterjee, developed this UCL well-being measure a, a, a few years ago. And to my knowledge, this is still the only clinical, clinically evaluated measure for cultural um, interventions in health. So this is NHS approved. And, and they have, this is the pilot study that they did a few years ago. They have more data since then, where over a 10-week course, it showed a substantial improvement, um, statistically significant improvement, in how patients felt. So they got one, one of these umbrellas to do before and after each activity. And then, again, 10 weeks after and six months after. So what, what it says is that well-being is enhanced when individually, physically, cognitively, emotionally engaged in multisensory creative tasks in social settings, so that's very important as well. So again, this flow state, people are completely engaged in all, all of their senses almost. They see stuff, they touch stuff, but also the hear and the smell, and then social setting is also very important. You do things together in groups. And this seems to really benefit, and this, this pilot was, was done with 
socially isolated people are older than 60. Um, and there it, it showed, especially that the, the, the social isolation was significantly reduced, and many of them continued then going to cultural venues and museums after the, after the work was, was finished of this particular project. And this led us then to this discovery that actually objects are not just good for learning, and this is the journey I was talking about, but also for well-being, led then to, this whole, um, to the, this whole new departure of thinking about objects in health more generally, and more recently, culture in a very broad sense. So the arts and health movement has been around for quite a long time. And a few years ago, again, my, my colleague Helen set up a, a, a Museum Health and Wellbeing Alliance. And last year, the Museum Health and Wellbeing Alliance and the Arts Health and Wellbeing Alliance merged to create the Culture Health and Wellbeing Alliance. And anybody who would like can sign up, can join for free, get the mailing list, get, get on the mailing list, and, and get updates of, of what they do. And a lot of this is based on this Parliamentary Select Committee report on creative health that came out in 2017. So this is a, a substantial document, 300 pages, with an extensive bibliography demonstrating that cultural interventions in health can make a real difference and, and, and really benefit uh, not just patients, but, but pretty much everybody. But it can also reduce the number of GP visits, the number of conditions, the social isolation is, is a big factor, obviously, with GP visits. So it can make a real benefit to the extent that the, the government has committed that by 2023, social prescribing will be available to all GPs all over England and Wales. And this is what this feeds into. This idea, well, I don't have really time to talk too much about social prescribing, but this is the idea that general practitioners and, and, and health workers have the ability to prescribe non-clinical activities to people to aid their recovery, including things like um, exercise, including things like gardening, working in the outdoors, including things like going to a library or doing a museum activity. So that the list of these activities is growing. Arts is always very popular. And, and, and there's a commitment from, from Matt Hancock, at least there was before he decided to, to run for, for, for prime minister, um, to make social prescribing available everywhere in, in the next four years or five years across England and Wales. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see, but there's definitely a lot of momentum behind this, this movement of, of, of including non-clinical interventions. But I don't want to depart too far. I'm very happy to answer any questions about social prescribing that, 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 that any of you might have. But I want to go back to higher education and, and to learning. And we asked, last year we asked, this is only a small pilot study we did, because realizing that link between health and well-being on one hand and learning with objects on the other. And we did all these trials with, with, with people in cancer wards and people in psychiatric wards and over 65s that are socially isolated. And in the meantime, there is this crisis of mental health difficulties brewing in our university campuses. More and more people are reporting high levels of stress and anxiety and serious mental health difficulties across this country and beyond. It's, it's, a, it's a problem across West, the Western world, I think, that university students and young adults in general feel under pressure so much. And, and therefore, we thought it's, it's, it's a logical step for us then to look back and see, can we actually, what we do, can that have some benefits to our own student cohorts? We asked them, how would you rate the impact of engaging with museum objects on your personal well-being? So this is after these are students who had worked with us on one of our object-based learning modules. And, and as you can see, between 
very positive and somewhat positive. So 79% of the students said there was a positive impact on their well-being. And this was not meant to be the case. They just did object-based learning with us. We just had them work with museum objects. And after the fact, we asked them, did that actually do anything to how you felt? So they weren't conscious about this in, in, in the first place. And granted, it's quite a small sample, but still. And the second question we asked them is, would introducing object handling and slow looking um, across the UCL curriculum would have a positive effect on student well-being and help to reduce stress? And uh, the results are bro broadly the same, that over 80% in this case says, yes, actually making this part of the curriculum would really help to, to, to relieve some of the, some of the, the stresses. So that's, that's really interesting and, and, and puts quite a challenge, I think, to us, that how can we make the curriculum more... How can we in include things like slow looking more in our curriculum that's also getting more and more fast paced? And I, I guess this is definitely um, a call for people to think again, especially if they think about things like two year bachelor degrees. If they want to reduce the, uh, the, the, the amount of time students spend with us and, and therefore increase the pressure even more. I, I, I think that's probably in, in the context of this not, not a great idea. Um, so this then relates to our plans. I don't know how am I, how am I doing for time. That's perfect. <clears throat> so this gave us a lot to think about, you know, that the students we are asking, the students who have been working with some of our collections clearly say, more of this please. Not just because we like to learn with objects, as, as they said already a few years ago, but also because it actually relieves stress in other parts of our lives to do this. And, and what we have been thinking about on the back of this is developing new programs that, that do exactly that, to, to bring these things center stage. So, so far we've been focusing on the learning element with the objects, with the material culture, and the side effects seems to have been that students felt that was, had positive Im impact on, on, the, on their health and well-being. But now we're looking at actually offering things where students are directly encouraged to reflect on the health and well-being benefits. Of, of that type of work, not just working with objects, of these cultural interventions more broadly. So this then brings us to the UCL East idea. Um, sorry, this is very fuzzy, this, this, this picture. This is, a, this is a, a, a sketch of what the culture lab is meant to look like on the ground floor of Marschgate. So that's the second phase, I think due to open in 2023 or, or thereabouts, um, that will provide uh, a space that hopefully will facilitate working with objects um, in, a, in an interesting, innovative way. But more importantly, potentially, well, that, that's important, but we are developing an, 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 an master's program in creative health at the moment that we are hoping to launch actually here in Bloomsbury and then when, the, when, when UCL East is ready, move across. And we'll be doing things like, um, like a module that we started last um, October just to test it, which is called Arts, Nature and Wellbeing, Non-Clinical Interventions in Health and where we get our students to engage every week in a different activity to do with a non-cultural intervention, uh, non-clinical intervention in health, with a cultural intervention. So they do gardening, they do body work like yoga and, and different movement approaches, they go to museums and collections, they do some art making, and, and every, week on week they also have, a, have an input from a professional or expert in that field, and the key is that they get to reflect. And the other thing then they get to do is they work with a community partner 
So far, that's been largely in the Camden Islington area. With the move towards UCL East, we're also looking at the Olympic boroughs to work with the community partner on a real-life problem. And very often, this goes back to the, the question of proving that interventions work, or, or, or if they don't, or, you know, to re-evaluate what these partners already do. So it's just a couple of examples. One of them, Kentish Town City Farm, which is um, an, an urban farm. Many of you will have come across that concept but largely open to, to children and families, but they were really wanted to explore why, why there's so many people in the 60s and 70s living in, in the borough, living around Kentish Town and, Burn, uh, and, uh, and, um, and Camden, and why do none of them come into the city farm? It's perceived as being something for young people. And one of our students worked with them as part of the module to explore, to the focus group with all the people in community centers, to explore what the city farm could do to be more open and, 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 and friendly to older people, and what, what activities could be involved. Other students evaluated, um, uh, evaluated projects that are already happening, like the, the, the hospital across the way, UCLH, have musicians from the Guildhall School of Music come in on a weekly basis to perform at the bedside for patients who are too sick to get up. And again, nobody has evaluated that. So these are trained classical musicians or, 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 or very accomplished musicians in other ways, and they come and perform at the bedside. And anecdotally, the nurses, the staff can all see this was making a real difference to these people's lives, but nobody had been able to evaluate it. So one of our students went in and did a really accomplished job and actually putting some data to this and, and showing the benefit that these interventions are making. So this is the type of, of thing we want to do more with the master's program. Um, and then coming back probably to Bloomsbury, um, we are also hoping to have this space. Actually, this should be happening very soon in the next um, calendar year or so, we are hoping to have in the Wilkins building an object-based learning space or more like an authentic learning space that's, that's open for everything. You can see there will be objects from the collections, there will be space for those, but it will be also super flexible. So we can do interesting things where people are not hemmed in, where, where furniture is, is secure but movable, where we can, can do engaging, um, engaging different ways of learning. So, so watch that space and hopefully some of you will come and do some workshops with us there when, when, it, when it's up and running in this time next year or thereabouts. I think this is pretty much it for me. So just to sum up, so if you think about the close links or the almost inseparability between us and the material world, uh, us as humans, it's, 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 I mean, in a way, it's common sense that objects are an excellent way to learn with. And, and I'm really keen on the word learning with objects, then learning from or about them. We learn with them. This is a, a, a joint enterprise in, in, in many ways. Um, but also that this slow engaging with, with material things has shown to have significant and demonstrable well-being benefits, which we need to explore much further. This is a growth area, but it's very clear that there is something there that we should do some more work on. And, and then, to sum all of this up then, we are working here at UCL to develop opportunities to harness that and, and hopefully be able to provide then the first generation of, of experts in culture and well-being, because there aren't any courses to qualify in this anywhere in the world. There's, there's medical humanities, there's arts and health courses, but none of them are doing really this non-clinical work, um, this non-clinical cultural work and, and, in health. And, and this, is, this is really the, the, the medium-term project that we have, is actually provide the first generation of, of, of these hopefully world-leading experts in, in, in culture and health. Thank you.
Thank you, Thomas. Uh, that was a really interesting lecture. Does anyone have any questions? And there's a mic. Might, might want to wait for a microphone. <laughs> Thanks. Sudak Smaran from the School of Pharmacy. Uh, I have been ask, doing object-based learning with um, medicines, different medicines like inhalers and skin patches and stuff with my students over the past few years. And I think what I'm doing is I've given them too many different objects and therefore, instead of slow, they are just getting on with the job. So when I first started this program, I didn't give them questions. I wanted them to engage and commune with objects and come up with it, their own learning. It didn't work very well. So I had to give them pointers. And I wonder whether I've given them so many pointers that they are busy doing the work, let's say, of answering the questions and not engaging. What would you suggest? Do I reduce the number of objects? or? Potentially both. I, mean, I think there's a danger with these um, object-based learning activities becoming a tick box exercise, right? If you have, have questions, people are just mm. then focused on, they're focused on the sheet with the mm. questions or the, the, the tablet, the laptop, rather than looking at the things in front of them. So the key is that the focus needs to stay with the object. So potentially reducing the number of objects could, 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 could be one approach, um, but definitely reducing the types of, of, of of, of tasks and activity and making, making it very simple and, and very, let the students come up with the ideas. So completely in, in, the, in the kind of uh, discourse of problem-based learning where you give them a problem without any solutions. And it's for the students, or for the students even to discover what the problem is. Here's an object. What do you make of that? How does that relate to the, the course you're, you're here to do? And this doesn't have to be if they are pharmacology students, I'm not, uh, or, or uh, it doesn't have to be medicines. You could introduce them as well. It could be something completely different. It could be an artwork. And the students have to make the link. What also works really well is having two objects that seem to be completely different and get the students in groups then to figure out what is the link here. And there doesn't need to be a, a right or wrong answer. There could be several ones. But that's worked really well we had in... Um, in the art museum, we've been doing workshops between Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, the, the cardiovascular science program, and, and our art, with our art collection. So they, we brought fine art objects in and some, some, some real hearts from pathology, and the students had to find the link, and that seems to have worked really well. So they, they looked at some 19th century illustrations and paintings and drawings, medical, but still, uh, and they had to find the link between the heart in the jar and, and, and the artwork, and that, those kind of things really worked. And, and, and taking the pace out, so not having it a tick box exercise, mm. and not doing a show and tell, that, 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 then it's almost pointless. Then you can do it with, with slides and photographs of the objects. If you just say, this is this, and that's what you meant to think about this, is think, how can the students come up with their own meaning about these things? And obviously, there's a bit of scaffolding required if they go off on a tangent to mm. kind of pull them back in, in, in a more sensible direction. But most of the time, that's not even necessary. Most of the time, the students get there by, by themselves. I hope that that's, that's helpful. Yeah, thanks, yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Anybody terribly puzzled about what, what, what I put in front of you? Are any of you planning to come to the Grant Museum later on? No. no? I wouldn't want to give, give this away. Uh, it's no, no. Medically inclined people might, might, might know what this is. This is... I was thinking about a baby's head, maybe. It's 
Can you describe it for me? What, what do you see when you look at it? What did you, you, you had it in front of you for a little exercise. Mm -hmm. What did you notice about it? Can you tell others what you... Yeah? It does, yes. It says Holborn uh, something company limited London HM government. So any ideas? This is actually a bit of a giveaway. Can you see it there? It's HM Government, Holborn, I'm trying to hold it still. HM Government. This is a bit of a giveaway actually what this is. So what, what this gives you the context of how these objects would have been used, the word would have been used. Something that was run by the state. It's not phrenology, no. It's much more everyday medicine. And it's Well, did you, it's, it's very striking, it has a business end, right? It has a very kind of rough and ready looking thing in the back where you can open and close. Um, I need to be careful. And you can kind of fasten something in here and then it has a nice shiny end. That's the end that says HM government as well. So it has, clearly there's a working end and a, and a presentable end. Did it hold a oxygen hmm? mask? You're very close. And that, that's the shape. Yeah. So the shape is really nicely to cover your mouth and nose. Oh, is it for anaesthetic? That's the one. It's an ether mask. So you put a bit of gauze on the back and the patient holds it. And it's important the patient holds it themselves because then you know when they're gone, right? So the patient holds it. <laughs> they count backwards from 10. You drop the ether on the gauze and when, it, when the hand lets go, you know they're gone. So anaesthetic is really interesting. I'm not, I, I'm not a clinician. I'm not an expert. But what, apparently we still don't understand why anaesthetic works. You know, when you're asleep, fast asleep, if somebody cuts you into, into the stomach with a scalpel, you will wake up roaring, screaming. But if you're not an anesthetic, you stay asleep. We don't quite understand why that works, but it, but it works, and that's the important thing. Okay, well, I think we've run out of time, but uh, thank you for coming, and thank you for your questions. Uh, this was part of the Festival of Culture, so do have a look on UCL's Festival of Culture website, because there's events happening all week. And yes, can you join me in thanking Thomas? Thank you.